Hello everyone, welcome to the Breaking Uneven podcast. We love to talk shop, uncover the beauty of failures and play a few games. Today we have with us the co-founder of Mana, James Lowe. After graduating from LSE, James was a strategy consultant at McKinsey and then joined SoftBank, SoftBank Vision Fund in growth and transformation. He is now the co-founder and CEO of Mana. Have you missed anything noteworthy from your journey so far? Nope, it's all good. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Perfect. So now to get started, uh, let's play a quick game to understand more about Mana. All right. So. Twitter is known for its 280 character limit in every tweet, which sometimes makes it kind of difficult to convey your thoughts. Uh, So we measured, it takes about 20 seconds to speak 280 characters. And so we transfer this challenge to you to explain to us Mana in 20 seconds, but we won't make it so easy. You also have to use one emoji and one hashtag in your tweet. Got it, got it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I will start your timer. Cool. Right, so mana is the Oops. mana is the hashtag TikTok for learning. <laughs> you browse a personal feed of learning content, then dive deeper with live streams and one-to-one classes. And is there that little emoji? Like you know this one? Yeah. <laughs> that's easy. The, the, the tweet. Awesome. Ten <laughs> seconds. That's that's amazing. Wow. Are you? Are Hope you... someone explains what we do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a great um, short description of what Mana is. We will definitely delve deeper into it throughout our conversation. But um, before we get to Mana, um, as someone in the corporate world, I'm keen to understand your thought process when it came to quitting your job at SoftBank and becoming an entrepreneur. And according to you, when would be like the so-called right time to make the switch? Hmm. Yeah, it's very difficult to decide on the right time. Um, for me, it was basically a combination of a few things. So one is that uh, I think I finally found a problem that I was passionate enough about that I could feel like I could work on it for 50 years and still not get tired about it. And critically, it wasn't the solution, it was really the problem. Um, and uh, I felt like the solution is likely to change you know, 10 times, 20 times in the lifetime of a company, especially in those early stages when you're iterating very quickly. So it's quite critical that the problem is really where your passion lies. Um, the second is that I felt like uh, I could actually, with the relationships I've been at that time, actually start um, approaching you know, initial users effectively to understand their pain points and actually try building around them. Uh, and so that was another key piece because in my head I was like, okay, you know, I might be very passionate about climate change, but I know nothing about any of the people who are experiencing these pain points. that would be really, really hard for me to build anything. Um, whereas in this particular learning problem, everyone around me, my friends, uh, people I was coaching at the time or mentoring at the time, all of these people were part of the same uh, problem space. And so it became quite easy to approach users for that. Um, the third piece was uh, a more stable financial piece, uh, which is that you know I kind of promised myself I need to get at least two years in savings um, so, so that I could pay both my bills and my parents' bills for two years so that I could really take a financial risk. And so there's always a chance, of course, that I can't raise any money, uh, or even if I did raise money, maybe you know my personal salary is going to be very low and all kind of stuff, right? So I needed enough of a runway to really make sure that I'm not going to be taking a, a gigantic personal risk uh, to the extent that I risk my family uh, and everyone's income associated with that. Um, so those three things were pretty critical. 
Um, and then I, I think, you know, outside of that uh, and, and trying to decide uh, what to do, um, I, there, there are much more auxiliary things, right? So it was like, you know, have we found uh, the right co-founder at that moment? Uh, do I feel like it's the right timing in the market? Uh, do we feel like investors are going to invest in this stuff and so on and so forth? Um, and I did have lots of those thoughts around that time. Uh, but I think in retrospect, as I think back, those were pretty unpredictable and difficult things. Like, you, you won't really get an answer to those things. Like, you, you won't get a, a sort of magic moment where you go, oh, this is the moment. Like, if I start a company right now, I'm going to raise $10 million in pre-seed, and, you know, the whole market is looking at this, and so on and so forth. And guessing momentum is almost always a bad idea because you, you, you can ride the momentum at the beginning, but by the time you actually start building the product, the momentum might have already gone. And so, um, so in retrospect, I think really what's most important is a problem that you're really passionate about. Um, the ability to access early users so that you can actually really deeply understand the pain points and have a unique insight. Um, and then having, in my case, a little bit more financial stability uh, to, to really go pursue the risk. The three points you stated makes it more clear uh, and it's a summarized version. I think it's also more quantifiable. Um, making decisions like this is always really difficult. So I think the way that you've like put it together and summarized it is um, really well. And I guess, how did you satisfy like these three points? Yeah, um, so in terms of the problem space, uh, Learning had been something that I was really passionate about since pretty much day one. Um, and so I, I started a sort of social charity that trained students in debating and then later trained them at university when I was 16. Uh, and even then it was a very core part of me. I, I felt like, you know, what really sort of woke me up in the morning and still wakes me up at night, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, it was really how do we empower people to, in some ways, do what they love and achieve social mobility with it. Um, and so, so that's always been a pretty strong driving force for me. Um, I think what particularly changed in 2020 was this realization that the technology infrastructure had got to a point where it's possible to truly democratize education at scale. Um, so I think my frustrations before, uh, for the last like maybe 10 years before that, was really that I couldn't find any solution where there was both a business model and the technology infrastructure and the right combination of consumer incentive to scale education. Um, and, uh, and everything I've worked on before were mostly nonprofits, uh, whether it's training people in debating or later when I was a generation, training people um, into unemployed youth into jobs. All of those things were incredibly impactful. They had like a lot of depth of impact of getting people into university, getting them into job. But it was really, really difficult to scale. Um, and so in 2020, I think it was it was a right combination of my motivations uh, still remaining intact and also uh, the technology infrastructure and, and obviously COVID sort of bringing um, all of this together. Um, and then on that second criteria of, uh, you know, can I access users? I think from, um, you know, since I first started my career, I think uh, when I was still at McKinsey and all that kind of stuff, I'd already been sort of regularly mentoring people, uh, whether that's, you know, university students or sometimes I'll be high school students thinking about their long-term future. Sometimes it might even be people of a similar age who are thinking about switching careers and stuff like that. Um, and so I've been doing that very regularly on the side. Uh, so I kind of realized actually the people I was mentoring was literally the audience. <laughs> and so it's quite easy to, uh, to talk to them and understand their pain points and so on. Uh, and then what we actually did when we first started the company too was we, we went on Reddit and just found as many students as we could and <laughs> just tried to uh, talk to them about their pain points as well. Um, and so in many ways that felt very easily accessible partly because of uh, what I was doing before. Um, and the final piece of financial stability, um, and, and that was uh, purely 
you know, luck over the last few years where I was working in very high earning jobs. And so it gave me a, a degree of um, financial stability. Um, and by that point, I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm probably ready to do this. Uh, and it was like nine months in lockdown. So I basically wasn't really spending any money. It was just cooking all day at home. Uh, and so it actually made it uh, much easier and probably a little faster uh, to make that decision as well. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's it's quite the checklist that you have, right? It's it's very measurable, very, uh, let's say, tangible, right? So it's, it's quite cool to have something that concrete to sort of, you know, let's say strive towards and then, because, you know, as you said, there's no like right moment, but you can actually identify, you know, the, a good period wherein you are satisfying a lot of these three things, right? Um, so that's quite, something quite cool that you have there. Um, but, you know, speaking about that pre-seed round and 1.5 million pounds, right? Is that a number that you had in mind? Is that, you know, a one year, two year runway? Or is that something that was the vibe you got from the people that you were that you were approaching? What was your journey with that PC? Yeah, uh, so actually, it wasn't a number I had in mind at all. Uh, in fact, my original plan was to bootstrap the company. Um, and so my original idea was actually I would stay in SoftBank until April and take the bonus check and use the bonus check as bootstrap money to start the, start the company. Um, and obviously, that would be a much smaller amount than 500k, right? Uh, but, but what I was thinking at the time was, you know, in, in general, bootstrap businesses tend to make better decisions in the early stages anyway. Um, and so uh, I was actually very worried about the fact that as a non-technical founder, I would end up defaulting to hiring people to solve the problem, right? Uh, and, uh, and often, um, even as an investor slash operator before, uh, that was most often how early stage startups start making mistakes. <laughs> you start hiring too much, you start defaulting to having an engineer solve your problems, and actually you're not really digging into product market fit. Um, and so I wasn't even planning really to raise. I was very lucky that um, Flash Ventures, who are our first investor, uh, they actually uh, found me <laughs> really weirdly, but, um, but they basically, uh, they invested in a friend of mine and um, my friend sort of told me, hey, you know, they're an interesting fund, you should talk to them. And I was like, I'm not really raising, I haven't even decided whether I want to leave SoftBank and do this and all that stuff. Um, and they're like, just talk to them. Um, and so I talked to Flash and uh, they move incredibly quickly. <laughs> and so, uh, so I think we went from the first conversation to term sheet in something like two weeks. Uh, so it was like incredibly wow. fast. Um, and, uh, and so by that point, and, and this was a 500k investment at the time, so it, it was the first uh, bit of it. And, um, and so they, um, you know, it got to a point where I was going, okay, we've got this 500 check on the table. Um, do I just take it and go start building this thing? Or do I wait another six months in SoftBank, keep working and, and you know, figure things out? Um, and I, I think it just got to a point where I was like, okay, I just actually want to build now. <laughs> and uh, and just, make, let's just go do it. And so I took the money. And then two months later, uh, we had built this sort of initial team and the core is basically my co-founder and I um, and, uh, and one other engineer. And it became quite clear also that we were validating the concept quite quickly and, uh, and there were lots of uh, pre-launch user interest. So at that point, I think we had around 780 or so people who signed up um, for, this, uh, for this sort of pre-launch um, waitlist. Um, and these were all super uh, highly qualified people as well to become creators on the platform. So we had people like, um, you know, the CEO of Central America and Google, the managing director of content at YouTube, all these people who I actually didn't really know before I started the business. Um, and so we started feeling like there was real momentum. And at this point, Flash uh, introduced us to Global Founders Capital uh, and, uh, and GFC were like, hey, look, we'll give you another million. Uh, let's keep going um, and, uh, and let's really double down. And so, uh, so yeah, so in many ways, we got extremely lucky in this uh, early fundraising process. 
um, and uh, and it was not at all what I was planning. And in in many ways, the amounts were also not what we were asking. So we never went to them and said we want one point five million, you know, and so on and so forth. It was really more uh, that the funds were driving how much we would do. Um, and so yeah, yeah, that that was the early stage. No, wow. Well, like I think you know, many many founders are quite modest in the sense that you know, oh, we got lucky in. And it's it's a it's an answer we get really often, right? Okay, like um, when you're talking such big numbers, right? They they're like, yeah, you know, we were we were aiming at this small little number, but you know, our investor said that okay, you know, this much is good for like your two-year runway or whatever. But I think that it still has to do with the fact that they believed in the product, right? They believed in the team, and that's why that number was there. Um, but I think something that you mentioned, which is really interesting, is that when you have a non-technical founder, um, one, it's quite important for early stage startups to like be able to easily pivot with the dynamic market that they're in, um, especially you know uh, understanding the needs and different directions that it can go in, um, and especially if you're if you're a non-technical founder, right? You said you default to your team answering the questions or finding the solutions, right? So can you like delve into that a little more? How does how can someone avoid that trap? or even identify that they're in that trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's, um, there, there's, a, there's a mentality piece and then there's a practical decision making. So the mentality actually starts from something I mentioned earlier, which is this problem solution passion problem. So I think what often happens is a founder starts a business thinking that they have enormous passion in this solution. So uh, you often hear this even in general conversation where people are like, I have this interesting idea, right? Uh, I have this you know, thing I want to build and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so they get really, really attached to the solution. Right? Um, and uh, now this solution may or may not be really attached to some unique insight about the market either, right? So often like, uh, you know, entrepreneurs start theorizing about a problem that they may not even have experienced themselves. Um, and they get to a point where they go, oh, I've cracked it. I've got this like super creative new solution, doesn't exist in the market, that's what I'm gonna build. This mentality is incredibly dangerous, um, partly because without a unique insight in the market, something you know that no one else knows in, in the market, uh, it's very unlikely your solution is truly defensible. Partly because being attached to a solution means that you're really resistant to iteration and pivoting. Um, and partly because also business people in particular, non-technical founders in particular, um, are incredibly good at theorizing and persuading people of their theories. And so the result of this is that they go into this cycle of self-delusion. Right? They start explaining to the team, the team validates them because the team's like, oh, he's so persuasive, it kind of makes sense. Right? So, so you all start jumping off this bridge, basically. And you start going, oh God, it's never gonna work. So, um, so I think it starts with the mentality beginning. It's basically that you need to launch your passion and root it really strongly in the problem that you're trying to solve and go really deep in the consumer and their pain points and like what, what are they actually experiencing that's so problematic and why are you so passionate about trying to help them solve that problem regardless of what that solution will end up being. Um, and then of course doing enough of the sort of user interviews or a deep understanding of the problem yourself and all kind of stuff to get to a unique insight that the market doesn't see. So that I think is the first most important thing and especially for non-technical founders uh, it's, it's critical to have that mentality switch at the beginning so that you're open to pivoting and you're open to building things that are perhaps not exactly what you had in mind. Um, the second piece is more pragmatic decision making and I think part of it roots from that mentality right so if you think you have this grand product in your head what you end up doing is you hire tons of people to build that grand product uh, and what yeah. will end up happening is they have a beautiful product that no one uses. <laughs> so, uh, so that's quite terrifying. 
Um, but also it's basically defaulting to literally the simplest possible way you could do something. Um, and that actually takes a lot of aggressive uh, thinking and, and sort of uh, and, and aggressive parameters for the team. Um, so to, to give you an example, uh, there's this app that basically does uh, shopping recommendations. I actually forgot the name, so I would love to give the name, but I forgot about it. It's an A16Z-backed uh, shopping recommendations platform. And it's you know AI based, and you get all these like super personalized recommendations. You see what your friends are buying, and then you could they, they use your friends like personal behavior to guess yours, right? Something like that. Now, when you look at this product, you kind of think, oh, the MVP must be really complicated. Like, surely you need to find a way to build some recommendation algorithm for shopping and all kind of stuff, right? Um, and and so when you think of that, when you think backwards from that grand product, you go, oh my god, you know, th this is going to be really really hard to build an MVP for. And what often happens is that these, especially non technical founders, then go consumers won't really understand the product until they see the whole thing. Right? <laughs> and so they start building the whole thing, right? Uh, and, and that just you know, destroys the whole, uh, the whole process. Instead, the MVP of this product was actually a Google Sheet. Uh, it was a Google Sheet where the founder was actually trying to buy baby products. And he shared the Google Sheet with other parents that he knew. And he put in all the baby products that he bought. And then he had another set of columns that basically went, you know, friend one, friend two, friend three, right? And it just went, hey, did you buy the same thing? And if you didn't buy the same thing, what was the other thing you bought, right? And so lists kept growing. Then what happened was his friends started sharing with the other friends, right? And so those friends started adding to the list. And so this became this gigantic spreadsheet on baby products. Right? <laughs> um, and you see these parents going, oh my God, you know, this other parent bought this thing. This looks pretty good. You know, I should buy that too. And so you start seeing this uh, grow up. Now, what he's done there is he's captured the essence of what the product's actually trying to do, which yeah. is that, you know, you are, you're actually looking for the product uh, that you know is validated by people that you trust. Right? Like that, that's really at the core of it. And you don't actually need this grand product to solve it. But if you have the grand product, it gets even better. Right? Um, and so, so it's basically this uh, distillation process that needs to be incredibly disciplined. Uh, and even you know, I think this is one of the uh, reflections I've had in the last year and a half is that I wasn't very disciplined about this. And now we are you know eating the cost of that. Right? <laughs> and so, uh, and so we're trying to to sort of you know go back to that discipline too. Um, but it is something that I think non-technical founders need to always keep in mind. It starts with a mentality and then it goes into that disciplined decision-making uh, that, that stands for it. Yeah, no, I like the idea of being attached to um, the problem rather than the solution. I think it's important and it's a good reminder for people to remember why they started something and try and get a solution for the, the original problem rather than like focusing just on the solution. So um, was the mana that you initially thought of um, the same as what it is now or how has it changed and pivoted over the last year and a half? Yeah, there's been enormous pivots. Uh, when I first came up with the solution, uh, it was actually fairly complicated. Um, so uh, we, we looked at it and we're like, oh, people struggle to access the right advice and all that stuff. Um, and so we, <laughs> we, we started going, okay, which is the market where we could have the most uh, immediate takeoff? Oh, let's do K-12 tutoring, right? So we went into K-12. Um, and then we built this, uh, <laughs> I kid you not, AI homework answering machine uh, that then connects you to a tutor afterwards. So, so we had this uh, Q&A thing where we used, we actually begged Greg Brockman for access to GPT-3. So it was still in closed beta at the time. And we sent this email to Greg Brockman. Uh, there was a cold email and I sent it two baby photos, which is my baby photo, my co-founder's baby photo. And I was like, please like give us access to GPT-3. And he did, <laughs> he sent us access. 
So we used, we trained GPT-3 to answer A-level questions. And it actually came up with pretty decent answers. Um, and then we basically create an interface where the, the user can basically ask a question and it gives you an answer. And then if you're not satisfied with the answer, you can connect with a tutor to answer your question. Uh, this all sounds great, right? Uh, it all broke when we actually got to real users. Right? So, uh, so first of all, like, you know, obviously if you rely on some, uh, you know, really quite untested NLP model to start answering questions, you start hitting all kinds of edge cases that go really wrong, right? So imagining, uh, you know, a kid trying to ask some question related to Adolf Hitler in, his, in a history exam and then seeing this incredible right-wing spiel that comes out, it's like, oh God, you know, it's not gonna work. Um, and then also we had this fundamental problem where the real paying customer were the parents, um, but then the user was the student. And so we're optimizing everything for the student's convenience, but we forgot that every time they need the payment, they're going back to the parent. And so we have this constant tussle where the parents and the students were arguing over whether they should pay for this thing or not. And so it became really difficult to monetize and really difficult to see how that process was gonna work. Um, and so after I think around three or four months, we basically pivoted away from that idea. And we started realizing that actually students care more uh, about non-academic stuff and actually things that um, they long-term want to do. So students asking us, you know, how do I become a hardware designer? Or uh, I actually want to work in fashion long-term. What do I need to do in A-levels to do that, right? And it's all very fascinating questions. Um, and so we started thinking actually that extended market might be quite interesting. Uh, and so then we built that sort of initial MANA product that was more public, which is this sort of one-to-one -one calls uh, scheduling yeah. uh, that came out. Um, but then we had another massive problem, uh, which is that I think we had 1,300 people by the time we launched uh, who were creators. So 1,300 creators uh, come on the platform, which was amazing. Um, and then this, by the second month, we had 700. By the third month, we had 800. Uh, and then it was, it was fluctuating, and then it was going down and down and down. Right? And so we're going, okay, you know, this is not going to work. Uh, but what's going on there was that um, these individuals who were amazingly credentialed, uh, worked in top-tier companies, all kind of stuff, they had no following. And so when they offer this, they might, you know, uh, put out a LinkedIn post at the beginning and it sort of drives a spike in demand, but they're not going to do it every day. Right? They, they don't really care about it enough to do it uh, constantly. And so you get this continual decline in users. And so then we had the third pivot, which was, okay, uh, we need some influencers who actually have following, but then we don't want the sort of general uh, influencers with no substance. So let's actually get influencers who are teaching skills to join the platform. And, uh, and in order to get them, we had to build them some basic biolink functionality, just like Linktree, so that they would use us as their biolink, and that gives us an audience immediately from their existing traffic, uh, and then give the monetization built into that uh, biolink as well. So that drove the first real growth curve for Mana. Uh, it went from, uh, I think, around 600 users by the time we, we launched that feature in uh, August and September 2021, um, all the way to 54,000 monthly active users uh, in the space around six wow. months. And so it grew really, really quickly. Um, and so then we started realizing, okay, this is probably working, but then we had another big problem. <laughs> so we did all this, and this is the final pivot before I close the question off. But basically um, we had a, uh, we realized that we had all these users, but they weren't buying anything, right? So they would come back every day, you know, they'll be really active and all kind of stuff, but they weren't buying anything. And when they transacted, they always transacted for free. So they would, you know, go for free calls and free meetings and free content, all kind of stuff. And we realized that, of course, you know, they are on social media most of the time. They're, they're going through their TikTok, they see a bio link, they click in. And what they're interested in really is more content consumption. They're not trying to buy anything, right? So, uh, and, and that action of buying is like super high friction. And so we had to figure out a way to make this purchasing behavior more seamless. 
Um, and so we ended up designing our mobile app, which uh, only recently launched in, in sort of May 2022. Uh, and it basically tries to blend this TikTok for learning style personal feed, where you still see a lot of interesting free content uh, that captures your attention. And then when you really like a creator, you dive deeper with one-to-ones and one-to-many live streams uh, and things that you can actually buy from that user. Um, I don't think we've cracked this user journey. It's something that we're working really hard on to try to figure out and you know, what's, the, what's the right format to make it work. Uh, but as you can see, we have changed I don't know how many times <laughs> in this process uh, to, to try to pivot to the right answer. Yeah, it's amazing to see the difference from where you started and where you're now and like the entire journey so far. Like it's been a massive change um, throughout and like how you all are continuously iterating to all the problems that keep coming. Uh, yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see like where you are in like a year's time and like how much more you've developed the product. But I think like as you said that um your problem has remained the same. It's just the solutions have kept changing. So it's nice to see that, I guess, in practice of how that looks like. In terms of going back to uh, the technical and non-technical founder, and given that you were the non-technical founder, how did you meet um, your co-founder, Bobby Dang, who was the technical founder? Yeah, it was very serendipitous, actually. Uh, so I didn't know Bobby before. Um, and I was originally actually going to start the company with another very good friend of mine. Uh, but then he was moving uh, countries at the time. So this was midway through COVID. And he was like, I can't take being locked down in London anymore. I'm going to move to like America. And I'm like, that's all right. So, um, so I was looking at that going, okay, you know, it's, it'll be really, really difficult to build a company together where we're eight hours apart and so on. Um, and so as much as I would have loved to, to do it, you know, it, it probably wasn't going to work. And so I ended up starting the company myself. Uh, and we had just raised the first round. So the, like Flash had just uh, put in the initial tranche of money. And so uh, then what happened was uh, I started writing on LinkedIn about what we were trying to do. And, and it wasn't uh, about the solution at all. It was more the, about um, you know, the problems in learning and education and how we want to change it, stuff like that. Um, so Bobby reached out on LinkedIn. Um, we started chatting. And uh, we realized we lived 10 minutes away from each other. And so we went down oh, to wow. this. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's like super serendipitous. And uh, the street between us is called the Bermondsey Beer Mile. So it's a, it's a bunch of craft breweries uh, in the same street. And so Amazing. we went down to the Bermondsey Beer Mile. Uh, we had a couple of drinks. I thought it was going to be an hour. It turned into the six or seven hour conversation. Just kept going and going and going. And we wow. realized that we had the shared passion for the problem. Um, but our perspectives on the solution were actually quite different. Uh, and so that the way we sort of debated the solution, the way we constructed and reconstructed the ideas, uh, I felt like we were pushing further and, and like further and further to the right answer, right? Um, and so I felt like, oh, you know, he might be the right person. And for context, I was talking to a ton of different people at the time. So I was like, to like you know, I think at one point I met the guy who made the app for Mr. Bean. Like, like he literally turned the TV show into an app for the, for the TV producers. Um, and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And it was incredible, like met a lot of very interesting people. But in the end, I think uh, Bobby and I had extremely strong chemistry from the start uh, and it became quite clear that he was probably the right person to go uh, to go to build this. So, yeah. No, uh, you know, I love the fact that you all had like, um, let's say different perspectives to the solution because, um, you know, again, about the fact that, you know, when there's everyone's in a room and like, even if everyone's super passionate, everyone understands the industry too, uh, super well and everything, you can have all of that, but you can still have a certain air of you know people just building on top of that one core idea, but that core idea itself might be wrong, right? Um, so that's why anytime we do like team huddles, um, 
we always appoint one, someone in the room has to choose to be devil's advocate. And the only like role for that particular meeting is to shoot down every idea that's coming out, right? In like every way possible, um, just to like get the sort of back and forth, um, which is quite cool that you all have that so early on, you know, that six to seven hour that's a great idea. I'm probably going to steal that for a few other meetings. <laughs> just, you know, we just, just have a devil's advocate uh, who does that. Um, well, like one of the things we do too, uh, especially for ideation meetings, is that we kind of force everyone to write before the meeting um, and uh, like on a few specific yeah. questions. Uh, and that causes people want to think a lot more. Uh, like it's almost the classic sort of Amazon memo type thing where you, you just yeah. have to go through the, the thinking process. Um, but also that you separate out the um, the individual ideas so that when you get into the room, you actually already have some constructed concept of what you really think uh, so that you can really have that clash. Like, uh, and it avoids a lot of that group think that starts happening when you just go straight into discussion. So, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think what, what another thing that that really brings out, right, is when you have different levels of, let's say, seniority in your team, right, someone mm -hmm. with five years of experience versus someone with one year of experience, Right. As soon as you get into the meeting, the person with five years of experience, if they speak first, the person with one year of experience, if they had a different idea, might not necessarily say it, right? Because they're like, okay, I have only one year of experience. He or she has five. So why would my idea be better? Yeah. But if they've written it down, if they put that effort in, they might still offer it up as a, oh, you know, that's, that's great, but there's also this kind of thing. Um, so that's another thing that that brings out. So I might, it's, it's good. I'll steal that from you then. So we'll, we'll call it even. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to a game. Let's play uh, red flags. We're going to give you three situations and in each situation there will be two good points and one red flag. Um, we have adapted these situations for mana. Um, and then you can choose the situation you would rather be in. Some of it is uh, made up. Some of it is some of the um, achievements y'all have had so far. Um, it's just so that you can have like more attachment to these situations. So um, situation one, Mana is the number one product of the day on Product Hunt. Uh, Mana raises 15 million pounds in its seed round, but Mana's co-founder Bobby quits. Um, situation two, Mana is selected by Sifted as top 15 startups shaping the future of e-commerce and the creator economy. Mana has the top 10,000 creators and professionals of the world on its platform. But there is a massive bug on the Mana app one week before the public launch. Situation three. Mana has impacted and changed the lives of 1 million people by giving access to find relatable people, uh, curated knowledge and communities of similar passion. Mana has improved the relationship people have with social media to be a more positive and productive one. But Mana only becomes profit making after 12 years. Got it. Got it. Yeah, um, I think it's actually a pretty easy choice. I think it's option three. Um, it's situation three. And I think it's it's a mixture of two things. Uh, one is that the milestones in that situation are are very clearly um, oriented around the impact instead of 
like fake milestones. So, so in my head, like, you know, how much money you raise at the early stages is basically a fake milestone. Um, how many creators you have is an interesting milestone, but it doesn't mean anything un until you can actually impact people. And so third one's really the only one that, that has like a powerful impact uh, on the customers and the users. Um, and the second is that um, I, I do want to create a profitable company, uh, but if someone's <laughs> going to fund us over a 12 year period to like, achieve that impact before you get profitable, great. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, so it's probably situation three. Okay, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting to like put people in situations like this because it uh, brings out where like the motivation and priority of the company lies. And I think that comes through when you're put in a situation where there are certain things that go well, but then there is something that isn't going uh, well as well. And that like kind of um, gives a more realistic approach on um, how things go. I did expect you leaning towards um, the impact one, but yeah, obviously I wanted to see what your thoughts were. Okay, so we have another challenge uh, for you. And to get into this, we want to uh, understand Mana's challenges. We play two lies and one truth. The idea is that you give us three statements from which one explains the truth and two are lies and false statements. Um, and then Anuj and I have to guess the correct one. Ooh, okay. <laughs> and it has to be about Mana as a company, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it's okay. Uh, so oh, like your journey with Mana, you know, something you all experienced, anything. Yeah, got it. <laughs> this is an interesting one. Okay, give me a second to think about it. Um, okay, all right. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so these are the three statements. And two, two lies, yeah. one truth, right? Two lies, one truth. Right. Okay, yeah. So the first one is that Mana has had applications from over 50 porn stars. <laughs> okay second one is mana has had applications to be a creator and these are all applications to be a creator on the platform mana has had applications from a republican congressman in the u.s and the third one is mana has had applications from two conservative party leadership contenders wow wow that is, that is like please such <laughs> i mean it's exactly the way the game is meant to be played so, so like kudos on that um <laughs> All right. I need to find three equally implausible statements. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be a surprise about which one is actually the truth. But yeah. <laughs> All right. Anuj, is there anything you're leaning towards? Oh yeah, I'm going to go for the, the lie is to 50 porn stars. I think it's, it'll probably be around 20, 25, not 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I would say... Um, the porn stars, I would say less than uh, 50 for sure, just because, yeah, given that it's like an educational platform, I don't know why would, why they would want to apply to be creators. Uh, so I would say less than 50. Got it. And, and it's two lies and one truth, right? So you need to guess the other lie as well. Um, <laughs> hmm. I'm going to say the, 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 the second one that you said. Um, yeah. The Republican Congressman. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, your your consensus, right? Republican Congressman yes. is the second yes. one. Yes. Cool. All right. The truth is actually the Republican Congressman. <laughs> we actually have had a Republican Congressman apply to be a creator, uh, which is absolutely crazy. Um, what well, they accept uh, The Conservative Party leadership contender. 
uh, no, he was not. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he spewed some pretty crazy Breitbart stuff. Uh, so, you know, um, so that, that's probably, yeah, he's probably not right for the platform. But, um, uh, and in general, I think we don't really take political uh, influencers. Uh, but yeah, the Conservative Party one is just a flat out um, uh, untrue figure. It's not true. Um, the porn star one is actually, you guys got it pretty right. Like, it's, we haven't had 50, but we've had quite a few, <laughs> like maybe 20 plus. Um, and it actually all happened, uh, well, it started happening right after the uh, OnlyFans announcement that they were going to ban porn. So when, when OnlyFans said they were going to stop uh, doing porn, basically all these porn stars needed an alternate uh, platform to make money. And so, so they started looking on the internet and we came up with the SEO and they started applying. So, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, they actually got a, I mean... I'm just trying to think, you know, what was the, 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 the Republican congressman's thought process, right, while um, wanting to apply, right? Like, what, what was he or she thinking? Um, yeah, I still wonder about that, actually. I'm not really sure. Uh, I, I think he's, um, like, it, it seemed like he was in some kind of early stage campaigning. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's my understanding. But, um, yeah, but I have no idea why he applied. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just saw that went, oh, okay, cool. Um, but cool. Um, Again, like kudos to you for playing this game. Probably the best we've ever had. Um, and now I think like, so this last game is um, rapid fire. So self-explanatory, two, two to three seconds to answer each question. Um, and, you know, one to three word answer kind of vibe. So let's, let's, let's start. Um, first question, how many all-nighters did you pull in your first year of mana? At least 10. Okay, not bad. What's the scrappiest thing that you've ever done to build your business? Uh, talking to as many 13-year-olds as possible on Reddit, <laughs> which is kind of weird. <laughs> this makes me sound very odd. <laughs> okay, so that, you know, we, we promise to never use that answer out of context. We'll always give context. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Did you ever question whether it was worth it? No. Amazing. One word to describe your emotion when you first raised money. Uh, actually, nervousness. I wasn't sure whether money was actually going to accelerate us, and I wasn't sure that I was going to use the money the right way. Oh, nice. Very interesting answer. Uh, what is the craziest story you've ever had from building the business? Oh, oh. I mean, I, we've covered like three of the scenarios just now. <laughs> so, like, I think my favorite moment was still uh, when OnlyFans announced they were banning porn and we suddenly got this influx of porn star applications. And we had no idea what was driving it until we started reading the news and going, it must be OnlyFans. Yeah, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was yeah. great. Okay, awesome. What, what is the weirdest place from where you have worked? Uh, what was the weirdest place? Sorry? What is the weirdest place from where you've worked? The weirdest setting from where you have worked? Ah, um, in a hospital, uh, like it's kind of weird, like my, my girlfriend got hospitalized a bit uh, for, for a moment and, uh, and uh, so um, I, I ended up working on her lap in the hospital bed um, and it was, it, the NHS hospital was very packed at the time so they actually, they created a makeshift room that was basically in the stairwell. <laughs> so no. I found myself in this sort of backup staircase hospital bed uh, working while they're and taking calls oh, on her my lap. God. It was, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> okay, what is the what is the best oh crap moment you've ever had? Uh, oh crap moment is what you said. Um, and and this is in life in general, or is it? Yeah, more? yeah. 
<laughs> oh crap moment. Um, I think it's, uh, it's when I rejected all my university offers and I finally realized I delayed it long enough that I really had to tell my parents. <laughs> <laughs> I finally realized, oh God, you know, we're going to end up flying to London and they'll realize I'm not going to university. Like, <laughs> that's pretty bad. Okay. Uh, books or podcasts? Uh, podcasts. iPad or notebook? iPad. Are you a morning person or a night person? Night. And what's your favorite social media platform? Ooh. I kind of hate most of them now, <laughs> but uh, it's probably a mixture of LinkedIn and Twitter. LinkedIn and Twitter, yeah. I think I think a lot of people we're speaking to nowadays are are coming to that you know conclusion, let's say. But I will caveat it with this: they love Instagram to consume content, right? But their headspace is really there when they're on LinkedIn and Twitter. That's that's the kind of yeah. what I get about it, right? Like people don't like Instagram, but they use Instagram for an hour a day or something, that's right? Um, but they love Twitter and LinkedIn. I think that's what's um, interesting. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, it's it's like the one's solving a real utility and the other is solving boredom, uh, and both are equally powerful instincts in our heads. But yeah. It, it triggers very different uh, use cases. Yeah, that's super interesting. Hmm. Cool. That concludes the rapid fire. Um, I'll lead off to Jami for the last little segment that we have. So uh, we generally conclude the podcast by asking uh, our guests to ask the next guest a question. Uh, so the, our previous guest asked, what's their secret uh, to success? We'd love to know about that. I think it's authentic motivation. I think everything that drives me is something that I consider to be a proper life mission in a way like it's it's not just a commercial like uh, outcome or some kind of utility that i'm trying to gun for uh like the business i'm building and i, I don't think i can build any other business uh, to be honest like I, I would probably if i try to build a b2b fintech SaaS company i'll probably <laughs> like give up within the first three months <laughs> so uh, so so it's it's an authentic motivation and it, it turns into the ability to motivate other people it turns into the ability to persuade investors persuade customers and so on and so forth so yeah, I think it probably starts from there. Yeah, um, I guess I can attest to like your motivation. I think you've been a great support um, throughout. Um, I remember back at university, I uh, remember coming to you f uh, for advice uh, when it came to like career and stuff like that. And then later when we started Reshape Co, you helped us with the training module for all our consultants. Um, so you've always been there um, supporting people and like uh, it's it's very easy to come to you for advice and I really want to thank you for that um, and like sometimes yeah it's 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 surprising to see where you get like all that motivation um, from especially when you're so busy on a regular basis and honestly thank you for an amazing you know like last hour right we've had I think so much fun you know discussing everything with you and at the risk of like constantly validating you um <laughs> it was just literally very dangerous for <laughs> um yeah it was awesome uh and thank you so much for joining us we had an absolute blast thank you for having me